Ko hui hui mai nei, irongi te kaupapa i tēnei wā. Ka nui te kō, ka nui te aroha, te ngākau ki a kitei a koutou. Nō reira i oku rangatira i homa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Ko ima Jean, tāko ingoa. I am the audiovisual historian for the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. And it's lovely to see you all today. So this project was born in Level 4 lockdown. Um, Elizabeth Cox, senior historian, who's here today. Um, Anaru Dalziel, who's sitting here, our audiovisual technician, and others sat and we had a talk, well, in our bubbles, we sat in our own homes and had a talk about what we could do. Um, we discussed the fact that our job is hingākau titikaha he hononga tangata. Our job is to connect people and to support strong communities at Manatū Tawanga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. And we thought, well, one way we could do this is do a project uh, in the bubble. We thought we could support communities across Aotearoa to connect while they couldn't physically connect. Now, the other reason for doing this was the uh, Tukuiho Oral History Awards uh, couldn't go ahead when they usually do in April. They were postponed till October. So we wanted to also find a way if we could to financially support the oral history community. Columbia and Baylor universities in the US basically immediately offered free online mass workshops on how we might do oral history during this time. Columbia in particular had been recording oral histories during times of disaster since September 11. I think they started two days after September 11. So they really knew what they, do they were doing. And um, Sue Berman, Lynette Shum from National Library, and others from Aotearoa got online with five or six hundred other people across the world at six o'clock in the morning, and I hadn't done my hair, and I didn't know there was going to be breakout groups, and we were supposed to be showing our video to each other in the breakout groups, but okay to play, uh, so we could learn how people were doing this overseas. Um, and Sue Berman from Auckland Libraries offered to help design and support the project through to the deposit of the oral histories in their collection. So we talked about how we would do this, and we um, approached experienced oral historians in various communities. Pia Khan, Will Hanson, Debbie Dunsford, Jackie Keelan, Alex Mason, Karen Wilton, Cheryl Weir, Linda Chanwai Earl, and Tuaratini, who are speaking today, all put their hands up and they said, yes, we will work with you on this project. So we got on Zoom, had a chat, um, and Anaru figured, figured out how maybe technologically we might be able to do this. And with some people, they uh, wanted to do a bit of practice, so I did practice interviews with them, and then they just got going. They chose who they would interview in their own communities. So each historian recorded four short interviews, um, and then we looked at this rich material, and I listened to everything as it came in, and it was such a joy to be in my tiny bubble, 47 square metres, in Burrampore, and to be able to listen to this rich kōrero from across Aotearoa. It really was a dream. But I was totally overwhelmed by how much beautiful, um, how, how many beautiful stories there were. And I wanted us to um, create and feature every one of the 25 people that we'd interviewed, which is absolutely impossible, which is why we needed an executive producer like Teresa Cowie, who could come in and think about how to bring out some of the stories, highlight them, and then people can go to Auckland Libraries and listen and do that online from other places and listen to the full cordial if, if they want to. And because we had Anaru, um, he was able to see that this could, be, this could be a significant project. He'd worked on podcasts before. I had never worked on a podcast before. I didn't really 
really know what a podcast was before we started this project. Um, and my niece, Ashlyn, who's 23, said, oh, yeah, this is how you do a podcast. She started sending me all her favourite podcasts. Don't do too much music, and this is how you do the sound effects. I'm like, oh, we need some help with this. So we were very happy when Teresa came on board. Um, so today, Tuaratini, who's one of the wonderful interviewers for this project from Auckland, she's come all this way today with Jacinda, her boss, who is not the Prime Minister, but is also a very wonderful wahine tour, have come down to uh, talk about the project today. Um, Tuaratini interviewed some delightful, creative and tenacious humans, and they really feature in the podcast because their voices were so strong. Um, and then Teresa Kawi, the executive producer, will pick up the story from her end and describe the process to podcast and broadcast. And we'll wrap up with a few questions if we have time. But uh, we also have information about this project on Ministry for Culture and Heritage. We've got some how to do this kind of project yourself. I recommend you always talk to archives and libraries at the beginning of a project like we did. Um, I won't say any more about that right now, but I'd like to welcome Tuaratini. Nga mihi nui ki a tātou katoa, tālo falava, mālo ili lei, nisambula vinaka, whakaalo fulahi atu, halo ula keta, kemna Māori, mo yorang, yorana, whakatālo whatu, tālo hani, ki rāna tātou katoa toa, i te aroa mātou te atua. We live in the Pacific Ocean, te moana nui o kiva, Aotearoa being right there at the bottom, that Pacific Ocean homes around 25,000 islands, we don't have time for me to say hello to you in all those Pacific languages. But I hope that uh, we have represented some of the voices of the Pacific in that small greeting. Hi, my name is Tuaratini. I am of Cook Islands descent. I come from the oldest island in the Pacific Ocean, which is the southernmost island of the Cook Islands. It is 18 million years old. I'm not 18 million years old. Uh, I just press this wee little button and we get to this here. I'm here to present to you a little bit of insight of Pacific communities, particularly those Pacific communities in Tamaki Makoto. Uh, when I was approached to be a part of this fabulous, um, fabulous project, I was in my bubble with my very small family of 12 people under one roof. Um, that is my Pacific home. And I must admit, at that first approach, I was thinking, I've got a lot to navigate already, just feeding these 12 people and, and hopefully getting them not to kill each other, each other over the next four weeks. Do I really want to do this? But I um, am in a unique position um, in that I'm in the largest Pacific Island city in the world. Or Polynesian city in the world. We make up 380,000 in the country. Um, most of those people live in Auckland and I'm in even more of a unique position because I work for this organisation. The Pacifica Arts Centre was, um, was an organisation that's been around for over 30 years and it stands on the pillars of arts, culture and community. It has been the home of a core group of artists and community elders called the Pacifica Mamas. Um, we have education programs for schools teaching Pacific arts and culture to around about 7,000 children a year. Uh, 
pre-COVID. And then we have, um, we're reaching communities upwards of around 30, 35,000 in audience engagement. So I'm in a very good position to be able to connect with those communities. Not just that, the Pacifica Arts Centre um, is a hub and space of arts and culture and community for around 26 different community groups, Pacific community arts groups. And we're talking about um, not just the large Samoan, Cook Islands, Tongan groups, but we're also talking about groups that come from one of the smallest nations in the Pacific, Fafine Nutao is a Tuvaluan group. They come every week on a Thursday um, from a group of Fijians, which number around 20,000 in this country and are represented beautifully in West Auckland in particular, um, with a group that come together once a week sharing Fijian dance, music, language and culture with young people. Um, much the same with the Tahitian community, about 2,000 in this country all up. Um, and there are only about two Tahitian groups and one of them works out of our space. And Rotuma, who don't even hit 1,000, there's about 982 according to the 2018 census. Um, big voices though, and they utilise our space. So how could I possibly say no when, when asked to provide some insight on what the life of a person, specific person would be like in a bubble? So I didn't. I pulled my big girl panties on and I went out in search of people connected to our centre who would be able to share their story. And it was a no-brainer to approach our wonderful friend, Albert Trail. Albert, uh, 43 years old, Suva born and raised, Fijian hearty, our father of four. He was father of three during the original, um, the original lockdown interviews, uh, married to a Cook Islander, and uh, he runs the Mickey dance classes and, and language classes at our centre. Um, he thrives on being able to connect with his community and young people every week. When the announcement of lockdown came about, it was obvious that he would not be able to meet with them face to face. Uh, coupled with this, he works as a air steward for Air New Zealand. So his wings were well and truly clipped and there were some massive changes happening there. And you know, while he could have gotten really depressed about the situation with a pregnant wife um, and being at home, uh, not sure whether he would have a job at the end of it all, he instead had a very positive and optimistic approach. Uh, he took his classes, digital, and they were amazing. Suddenly he went from reaching the 30 to 60 young people that he did once a week at our centre to talking to people in the UK, in the United States, um, across the entire Pacific. So his audience became global, just putting up small video they weren't podcasts, they you know, small video lessons every week. And so he taught about language, he taught about culture, he put his, his kids to work and they danced and those videos went out a couple of times a week. So while that was happening, um, he was there uh, re or adjusting to life in lockdown. And so when I spoke to him a year later, he said they came out of it with a changed perspective. Health and hygiene was a big one for them. 
all the hands are out and it's little squirt just washing for safety, you know? Uh, out in public, we're conscious of touching things. Um, we're conscious of what other people are doing. If they're sneezing or sniffling or coughing, we're kind of like, oh, just move to the left, guys, or move to the right. And then the other consciousness is um, spending, just spending on stuff you don't need, you know? Um, and, I, and I think it's really good because it's locked us into having a few more solid, clear goals of what we want, you know, and something to work here, to work towards. So the positive learning that Albert has actually got out of lockdown is that you can save money. And he's cooking more at home. He and his family, they cook more at home. And he's now working towards buying his second house, which is a great story considering we tend to hear in the media lots and lots of really sad stories about people losing their jobs, um, not being not being able to cope. So for to hear from Albert that he's like, we're well on our way to saving to get that second home, I thought was a wonderful little outcome. Um, he went back to work eventually, so he did two repatriation flights uh, for Air New Zealand during the lockdown. Um, and he said he was asked to do a lot more, but he rang up every single single friend he had and said, you do not have a family, I do, can you please take my shift? And he said when he did end up having to, um, to crew on those repatriation flights, it was like something out of the movies. Military rocked up, he said, and he realised that his role was not to make coffee and bat his eyelashes. Yeah, just sitting down on board, we really became our role as flight attendants, dropped from the customer service and service interaction to safety officers, uh, which technically, if you look at the laws of civil aviation rules, hospitality and service is not a necessity. The main reason why you have flight attendants is for safety operation procedures. And so that's because if there's an accident, if there's a uh, mishap on the tarmac or in the air, and there's a crash landing or anything like that, our role is to get everyone out of there safely and alive. Thank you for adding that and alive. So um, it is now a little bit longer than, uh, you know, since we've spoken and he was just saying to me that the dynamic of people who are flying um, has definitely changed. So they've noticed as um, cabin crew, uh, it started off with just the business people flying and then it was um, slowly families started to come through. He says a lot different than shipping the, or flying, I should say, the Korean tour groups and the American tour groups around. Now we're getting those families who used to fly to Denaral Island in Fiji or to the Gold Coast. Uh, they're getting on the plane and they're taking the whole families down to Queenstown. So uh, things will change again, I'm sure, with the announcement just yesterday that the Aussie travel bu uh, bubble is, um, is opening up. Albert, to this lovely young lady. Um, she's connected to the Pacifica Arts Centre as one of our tutors for our education programme. She's a musician, um, she is a drummer, uh, she provides support to our Pacifica Mamas as well, and uh, she had a really interesting story. It was so important that I con uh, connect with her because when the announcement came out, that announcement came out, um, she was just about to get on a plane in Honolulu. Uh, she was flying back to Aotearoa where um, she'd been away for about 10 days with 40 members of the Cook Islands Golden Oldies netball team. 
And this ended up being her bubble. When they arrived here, it became quite obvious that they were not going to get on their plane and go back to sunny Rarotonga. And Selina, who works in social housing, who has a heart for the community and her people, felt personally responsible to ensure that these 40 men, women and children were housed and looked after during that time at lockdown level four. That was a brave undertaking, but she managed to find them a community hall where they bunked down marae style. She rang every single contact she had and she asked people to bring blankets, bring mattresses, bring food, bring love, bring support, so that these ladies and men and children would be able to survive. And the support came from all sectors of the community, even little support that came from over the fence from the New Zealand police. So by the way, this video was shared numerous times across Facebook, you might have seen it on media as well, and that brought such joy to these women who by this point had been locked up for such a long time and hadn't seen husbands and children and family back in Narotonga. So just to have that visit from the community and from the police was, was great for them. So when Selena came out, here's a few of the things that she said to me. She said, what did I notice when I came out of lockdown? Everyone had gone back to Narotonga. I'm back into my real world. First thing, fear. She said, I was afraid to go back to work. I was afraid to connect with my work colleagues. I was afraid to shake their hands, give them a kiss, give them a hug. I was afraid to get into their space. And she said, it took a long time to no longer feel afraid. And then she said, once they started uh, feeling less fear, uh, she was able to look around at the community that she serves. And she saw that they um, hadn't been prepared, that they did need a lot more support. So she said things like purchasing lawnmowers for their local clients, um, making sure that they had things that they would need in case we went into another lockdown was key to her work. Now she's also a JP and I found it quite interesting that um, her work as a JP became quite busy too. After um, lockdown finished and we were able to, to continue work again, uh, and be able to to see people face to face. Definitely, the work for JPs increased uh, because then people were now drawing into their um, into the their Kiwi Savers, their Kiwi Saver funds, um, and that was one thing that people needed to access to help support them through this time. So it's um it's a quite an opposite story to the one that came from Albert. Albert was, say, was saying, I'm saving money and I'm going to buy me a new house. And uh, Serena's telling a very different story of our communities, communities who are so desperate that um, need support and need to go and withdraw their KiwiSaver. Uh, I had a couple of more people that um, I spoke to. This lovely girl here, she works as our Pacific Senior Specialist 
for Auckland libraries. And uh, we, sh we work very, very closely with Angelique Tuaputa, um, happens to hail from the same island that I hail from as well, I just want to mention. Um, and she's a social butterfly who is always connected to her community, connected to the arts. She drums for the Tahitian group that comes and visits us. And when she went into lockdown, uh, she had a different story from the others in that she was locked down in a very small bubble with her widowed father and her younger sister, just the three of them. And I know from speaking to Ange that that drove her a little bit crazy, being in their house with just the three of them. And I think that's a story too that resonates for a lot of people who are in um, isolation by themselves or just with your husband who you didn't want to be with for four weeks solid, <laughs> right? And so um, this was a, a big deal for her being locked in that space. She missed her cousins, she missed her family, she missed going out to lunches, she missed going out to dinner, she missed a whole lot. Um, they went through the small panic buying just before, before lockdown. Um, but a lot of that missing missing people came out. Um, she worked on a welfare system, which is uh, something, as a Mormon, um, they have a 72-hour emergency kit that you're supposed to prepare, and then you're supposed to have this longer-term shed, and so they worked on that. She says, that's full, there's not much else that they can do. Um, when she went back to work, spaces changed. They did a lot of moving, um, ensuring that the, the, the spaces that they were working in were compliant, so she was moving furniture. We had to change the look of the building. Uh, we had to tape off a lot of places, um, seating areas we had to remove, which really sucked, especially for the kids um, and the old people because, you know, they couldn't sit about and hang around. We had to restrict the amount of people coming in and out of the building. We had a counter. Um, we had a contact tracing person at the front door. Um, and we did not... Uh, carry on as usual in terms of our office workspace. So one thing that Ange had said was that she had to be reassigned. When we went into lockdown, she had to be reassigned. And one of the things that she did for council was she rang mainly the elderly in the community. She rang them up to check how they were. And she said it was sad. It was a lovely job, but it was sad. She said because every Pacific Islander family she rang, they were fine. It was those who weren't Pacific who had problems. They had issues with feeling isolated and, and not being supported. So she said it was nice to know that our Pacific people were looking after our Pacific people, but she felt for the rest of the community. Um, and so Ange has now, by the way, after lockdown, she's back into socialising, uh, but she says now she needs to do some hiking because everyone got fat during lockdown the first time. So she doesn't go and catch up with people at, at dinner anymore. She catches up with them and goes for walks. Um, the final connection I made was actually um, in my own abode because I thought my little lockdown bubble of 12 people under one roof was an interesting story. Um, and, well, I couldn't interview myself, so I did have a chat to my sister, who up until 11.45 the night before lockdown, or the day, you know, 15 minutes before we went into lockdown, was literally moving out of her apartment and into our family house. So for three days, we had cars 
filled with her stuff because we had been um, screaming across the motorway to get home before the 12 o'clock ding, 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 ding. So Maggie Ra is a couple of years older than me, which makes her about 21. <laughs> um, and her bubble looked like this. Uh, how do you domicate a household with an 80-year-old, um, a wee little baby, and some lots of crazy people in between? Um, we have not. We don't have a mansion either. We've got a small home, uh, and we did a lot of eating. Um, and she spent a lot of her time focusing on something, which is, um, yeah, focusing on renovations. So when we went out of lockdown, Maggie actually works as a finance broker. She said people were coming to look at financial advice around spending money on renovations. That was the number one. And because these are the same people who would be travelling to Europe. These are the same people who would be travelling to Australia. No longer are they holidaying overseas. So they wanted to spend money on flashing up their homes. So she was getting an influx of those kinds of inquiries. Um, she was too shy to come on uh, and do a post video. My time says I need to stop here. Stop it. What's changed? Still, even one year later, we are second guessing the gathering face to face. Okay, what's changed? Kissing. We are not um, greeting with the kiss and hug as much as we used to. Uh, if we do, we are again second guessing ourselves. Uh, we're now connecting more and more using digital communication. Uh, we are aware of coughing, sniffling, and going to work and going to school. And we do feel that disconnect to our families, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji. We're feeling like um, we haven't seen them in a million years. Um, there is so much more that we could talk about, but I am out of my time. I'd like to say to you, me taki maata ki a koto kato toa, fafitsai tili lava, malo alpito, fakawilahi, mahalo nui loa, vinaka vakalevu. That just means thank you. I think the connect and disconnect of this project and people's communities was one of the fascinating things about it, thinking about. Um, how people in some ways became closer to each other because they had the time to reflect and pause and, and chat, but then they were physically still distant. Um, so we're very lucky that I could kiss you today. <laughs> so pleased you could actually be here. And now I'd like to welcome Teresa Cowie, the executive producer. Not only do both these speakers um, have uh, in common that they have amazing hair, but they're also incredibly clever women who um, can think on their feet and tell an amazing story, and they know how to um, structure a corridor in a way that can draw people in. So, hi my Teresa. Thank you so much, Emma. Who doesn't want to be complimented for their storytelling and hair? <laughs> Kia ora, and uh, thank you for welcoming us here today, Valerie, as well. Um, okay, so... Here we go. So late last year, I heard that the Ministry for Culture and Heritage was wanting to make an oral history podcast about lockdown. Back then, we were still in the thick of this crazy Covidian era, and it sounded cool to me, but part of me wondered, why would you bother when we're still living our lives in levels? Who'd listen? I'm a journalist and a documentary producer and presenter. 
And the last time that I'd worked on an oral history project was on the BBC's World War II People's War project, and that was back in 2003. I was part of a team who collected 47,000 stories from the people of Britain about what life was like living through the war. But that project was on the 60th anniversary of D-Day. And it was about collecting the stories before it was too late. Before, uh, to put it frankly, these people either lost their memories or their lives. Um, I'm no oral historian and um, no oral history expert at all. Uh, in fact, if anything, it's simply a coincidence that I've ever worked on any kind of project like that before. Um, but that project was six decades ago, uh, after it happened, you know, six decades after it happened that it was the, the, the series went out. So how could a history podcast about something that's still happening and still happening now have worth amongst the barrage of information in this never-ending COVID news cycle? But something about the project seemed exciting, finding out what our Ministry for Culture and Heritage does. And... Uh, how oral historians record these histories. Uh, of course, also the opportunity to bring these stories to a wider audience, well, it made a lot of sense. Also, <laughs> being a nosy journalist, I wanted to know what other people's lockdowns were like and have a bit of a rummage around in their lives. So I started thinking about, well, what was my lockdown like? What was different about it to perhaps what others might come up with? I started looking through the photos that I'd taken on my phone from that five weeks uh, back last year in April uh, and March, and I had quite a lovely wee trip down memory lane. I recommend you have a look too <laughs> at your own. Um, so at the time, I was a journalist at RNZ. Um, usually I made documentaries, but at that time it was all hands on deck getting the news out. Um, but it's not easy finding a quiet spot to record a morning report story or an interview in a house with two noisy children threatening to barge in at any moment. So the picture up here I have is a sign that I would stick on our kitchen door and written there in black marker pen by mine own hands are the words, no entry please, mummy is doing an interview for the radio, fine equals 30 minutes screen time, lost. <laughs> you had to make sure they knew you meant it. Um, and I'd just like you to take a moment there, please, to take in my exceptional graphic design using some RNZ logos I'd cut off my business cards and sellotaped on. Uh, another little one from Memory Lane. Uh, this is me recording a story for Morning Report in my wardrobe. And I'm talking into my husband's shirts, which are providing a nice studio-style sound dampening effect as I try to avoid accidentally kicking over a grotty bucket of damperid. <laughs> and this one here is me out in the field, essential worker. Um, I am talking to a fresh produce seller who usually, she usually delivers to offices. She had to rejig her whole business. Um, and I'm talking to her about how she's adapting her business for level four lockdown. Um, but you'll see there that I've adapted too. I needed to stay two metres away from her, so I grabbed my kitchen broom from home and stuck my radio recorder on the end there and the microphone um, with a massive blob of blue tack. Uh, the funny thing is, though, she didn't even bat an eyelid at me in my dust bunny-covered broom because we all got so used to doing things differently in lockdown, didn't we? But this little nostalgia hit from my phone photos made me think, yeah, 
I reckon an audience wouldn't feel like they need to wait 60 years to look back on that moment in history, to remember what it was like and what it, what it felt like to be in that, I'm going to say it, unprecedented time. But with hours and hours of recordings done by nine different oral historians and not specifically for the purpose of a podcast, how was I going to tell this story? piece together a series that a general audience would relate to. I remember it was spring when I got the hours of audio sent to me by the ministry. I chucked on my headphones and my gardening gloves and I went outside to plant some tomatoes and listen. I knew each episode would have to carry more than one character each. The recordings were of varying quality and they hadn't been specifically recorded for radio. They had nine different interviewers, which would have been too many voices for listeners to follow, and most of the interviews wouldn't carry an entire episode on their own. As I dug into the compost and contemplated the soil structure of my garden, the structure for the series started to take shape in my mind. It occurred to me that what I was hearing from each of these people was their individual experience of lockdown, but it needed to somehow set within the notion of our collective experience as a nation. So I decided that we would make five episodes to mirror the five weeks of full lockdown and we'd pull together the individual stories under collective themes. Having multiple voices in each episode, I came up with the themes we prepared, we cared, we learned, we moved, and our production team member, Georgie Keyes, came up with a brilliant idea that we should end on how we connected, because we definitely did that in a few different ways. What next then? Well, Dr. Kelly, Georgie, and Clara de Sosa, a museum studies student intern, had written summaries of the interviews and itemised the audio with keywords. I wrote the script templates for each of our themes, our we themes, and they pulled across any of the gems, any of the cool stuff that people said um, from the interviews that might fall under those episode themes. But who would host the podcast? <laughs> the initial assumption, assumption was me, a broadcaster, but I thought, nah, that'd be too easy. I thought, why not the person who really knows about it, an historian? When I met Dr. Kelly, I just knew that if I coached her in the specifics of radio presenting, she could do it. And I thought it would bring so much more to the series to have both her expert knowledge and her personal memories or her own oral history, if you like. I also thought it would be a good idea for the listener to lift the curtain a bit on what an historian at the Ministry for Culture and Heritage actually does. Dr. Kelly agreed. Thank you. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, and we rehearsed a lot. Uh, she led out her inner thespian, and we had a really fun time doing voice coaching and rehearsals to transfer for her existing public speaking skills that you've had a bit of a sample of today to the more intimate delivery style we use for radio. Around then, though, I remember thinking, these stories are so good. They really need to be shared more widely. So I talked to RNZ about getting it on, the, on its radio and digital platforms. They said yes, and now those stories have been shared all across the Motu. Now I'd like to share with you this three-minute audio snippet, the opening to episode one, 
we prepared. To give you an idea of how I pull together the audio under these themes with now, as I like to cheekily refer to her, New Zealand's leading oral historian broadcaster, Dr. Emily Jean Kelly. Non-essential businesses in New Zealand must now close. All bars, restaurants, cafes, cinemas, pools, museums, libraries, playgrounds, any other place where the public congregate must close their face-to-face function. All indoor and outdoor events cannot proceed. In short, we are all now preparing as a nation to go into self-isolation. These decisions will place the most significant restrictions on New Zealanders' movements in modern history. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Imogene Takawingwa. I'm Dr Imogene Kelly, an audiovisual historian with Manatū Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. And this is Kato Tuitamiru, Inside the Bubble. As lockdown loomed and you gathered your whanau, your supplies, your nerves, we corralled a team of oral historians, grappled with technology and digitally found our way into 25 unique New Zealand bubbles to capture your Aotearoa as you made history. It was a journey all five million of us made collectively as we prepared. And so my sister went crazy and bought so much cans. She became the panic shopper and I became the wingman to the panic shopper. We cared. I'm working part-time nursing. The first two weeks Mm. was very scary because we didn't know what was going to happen within the hospital. And we moved particularly going on lots of government mandated walks outside. And I see a lot of older people, people who look to be in their 70s and 80s, who I don't think you would normally see out on bikes. And we learned. Uh, And I tried to learn guitar. I learned three songs during the quarantine. And we have four guitars in the hostel, so that was perfect opportunity. We kept the homeschool thing happening. We made marshmallow putty and we did painting and uh, we exploded volcanoes. And even though we couldn't be together, we connected. I'm encouraged by the goodness of humans. I think there are the silver linings of connection and us seeing the best that we can be and caring for ourselves and our neighbours. And now we remember In this episode, we'll look back at how we prepared. (laughs) Okay, Um, well, thank you for um, having a wee listen to that. I hope you'll uh, listen to the rest of the series. Um, I'd like to thank Manatū Taonga for trying something new, for giving podcasting a go, and actually more than that, more than just giving it a go, making sure that it was produced to a quality that New Zealanders expect and deserve. Not all New Zealanders will have the time or educational background to dig into their library archives 
or read books to understand and engage with their history. But if we can bring their history to them through their headphones as they walk home from dropping the kids off at school or through a paint-splattered Bluetooth speaker as they work a day on a building site or bumping along, listening to the radio inside their tractor cab, then we've done our job of enriching our culture and heritage for all New Zealanders. So thank you, Dr Kelly and the Ministry for Culture and Heritage for making the history of Aotearoa available to more New Zealanders in more ways. Thank So we have a few minutes for questions. Do we have do we have a mics for questions? Um, I'd be interested to hear a bit about the um, the technical aspects of of recording and whether that um, required you to learn an entirely new um, language of technology or whether that was something you already knew how to do. Thanks, Tim, for that excellent question. Um, we used the technology that everyone was already using. So if you're on Teams or Zoom um, or you just used your phone, we used those technologies. But what we did was work out from going to those big workshops I mentioned um, how we could use those technologies best. So I didn't know until Anaru said, Zoom has two channels. So you can have a channel for the speaker and a channel for, a channel for the two speakers. So you could split the sound out, and that meant that you could enhance the sound later or separate it if you want to. Um, what were some other like good little tips we had? Um, using technology to enable, not disable. So we went to each participant in, in the project and said, what are you using and what are you used to using? What are you comfortable using? And nine times out of ten, it was Zoom, so it was real easy. And you know, we all used Zoom for the entirety of lockdown, or we used a tool that was similar to that. So rather than be prescriptive and box-like about what technology it would um, would be chosen, the idea was to make it completely adaptive and use what was available. And out of that snippet that you've just heard, you know, all of those voices that appeared, actually, um, collection point was Zoom, and you know, with the benefit of post-production as well. Um, all of those have been, you know, heavily worked to all sit together with all of the components that are going on, but it was still a pretty damn good platform to work from. So it wasn't hard. It was easy. It was stuff. I mean, technology is now at a point where everyone's communicating on a device just about in, in their hands. So we're all used to that technology, and it works. Mm. Um, I kind of wanted to add too, though, that uh, when we got that call up, uh, as an oral historian, you you kind of trained that um, you collect oral histories using this kind of um, this format um, it, because it needs to be archivable. So um, it felt impossible from the outset. Like, how can you possibly call this an oral history project if I'm doing it from my dinky, tinny-sounding laptop at home? So it was really good to have that enabling uh, mentality. Um, um, I still wonder whether the stuff that we've collected is um, something that um, the oral history purist would want to archive because... I have to admit, I think some of my audio was a bit shoddy, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so the fact that we were working with both Anaru and Sue Berman at Auckland Libraries, and she's their, what's her title, um, Principal Oral Historian. 
and she's also working as an archivist there, meant that we could have those kōrero with her, and we were anxious about it too. People across the world were anxious about the quality of the audio. Um, but A, she said it was really important just to do it and see if we could make it work. But B, as Anaru said, the technology is improving so fast, you can do something on your iPhone these days that you couldn't do with a good oral history field recorder 10 years ago. So um, we just had to kind of trust the people we were working with, and now all those oral histories are available online through Auckland Libraries. So um, they seem to be happy with it. Sue's boss agreed. Um, but yes, it was an experiment, and it wasn't a perfect experiment, but we thought it was important enough to do it anyway. Maybe one final question, if anyone has one. Namahinui kia koto. Thank you very much. That's a wonderful um, presentation we've had. But I just wondered, now that you've done this, have you got plans for um, other aspects of <laughs> life in Aotearoa? I'm exhausted. I can't think ahead. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, I think we all are having some, you know, thoughts in Kōrero about what else could be done. Um, you know, part of my job as the audiovisual historian is to also look at the archive and see what, what we could bring out. I can work with Ngā Taonga Sound Division and various people on that, so I might not be recording something immediately, um, but it could be bringing out some materials from the archive. But we were hoping with this project to encourage other people to record their kōrero. So it wasn't just about us, it was about empowering people to, to record the stories they wanted to record, and not just with older people, with younger people, with, you know, uh, yeah. And, and, and I do know there are other oral historians, Pip Oldham's here. Um, some of the oral history award winners from recent years have been turning their kōrero into podcasts and putting them on, online and on RNZ. So more of this is happening. Um, yeah, I hope that will continue. Thank you so much um, for coming today. Thank you, Sarah, for hosting us and to our wonderful speakers, Tuaratini and Teresa.